Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you turn to the place, could I also welcome you? Um, it's good to see all who have gathered in the Lord's house on this first, some, or this last Sunday of, of this year and on the threshold of the new year. And we trust God will be with us and bless our hearts as we meet before Him and we consider His precious Word as we will read it now and come to the Lord's message in the model text for uh, 2024. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read the chapter with you. It's a very important chapter. It's a chapter that has a tremendous relevance always in every generation and certainly in our times. It's so up to date in what it says, what it has to teach us. And we trust today God will bless our hearts as we read His Word and we consider it then in terms of the particular text that I will bring to you. And you've probably, if you've got one of the little cards, you know what the text is, but I trust the Lord will bless His Word to us in a very real way. So let's hear the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres, that's actually two of the magicians of Egypt. Uh, you don't get their names in the book of Exodus, but here are two of them. Now, as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs, that is, the magicians of Egypt, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that's our motto text, verse 14. But just to read to the end of the chapter, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we know that God will bless the reading of this, His Word, to all of our hearts. Now, could we just bow together and let us unite our hearts in prayer once again? Let's pray. Lord, we bow before Thee, and we wait in Thy presence in the name of Thy well-beloved Son. We rejoice in Thy hand upon us today already, and even during the year gone by, we are aware, Lord, of various people in this gathering now who have wounds that are still sore and have tears maybe that still flow. And Lord, we pray that Thou wilt remember them as they've come through difficult days and give grace. We thank Thee for the Word that lies before us. We pray for help now as we look at this verse and its context. We pray that Thou wilt give help and Thou wilt breathe on the preacher, breathe on the hearer. O Lord, I confess my need of Thee. Cleanse my heart in Jesus' blood. Breathe on me by the Spirit of God. Come down and tabernacle with us and speak this day through Thy truth, for Thy glory, for our good, for the strengthening of our minds and our hearts, for the advancement of Thy kingdom, even as we endeavor to continue on in coming days as You spare us and You enable us to do so. Be with us, we pray. We ask all this for Christ's sake and for His eternal glory. Amen. So here is our text for 2024, verse number 14 of this chapter. We will read it again. It says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. In this verse, Paul refers to the things that Timothy had learned. The reference, of course, is to the things of God, the truths of the gospel, the faith that had been delivered and was continuing to be delivered in those days to the saints. In such matters, Timothy had been well taught, and he was fully aware also of whom his teachers had been. In the first instance, of course, teaching that had been given to Timothy had come from a maternal source, from both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We learn about that in chapter 1 and verse number 5, where Paul writes there of the unfeigned faith. That means a faith that is completely devoid of hypocrisy, a faith that is real. In other words, the unfeigned faith that Lois and Eunice possessed. And with such an example before him, Timothy had also come into possession of that same unfeigned faith, proving thereby that his early instruction by his grandmother and by his mother had not been in vain. Lois and Eunice, those two godly women, stand in stark contrast with some other women to whom Paul refers in this chapter, verses 6 and 7. This really struck me when I was preparing and studying this week. If you look at verse 6 and verse 7 of this chapter, you will see these other women who are in view. And thank God, Timothy's grandmother and mother were not like these ones. It says in verse 6, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with lusts, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, 
and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the word silly means essentially weak, and it has a reference to spiritual weakness, to a failure to understand the truth. And so what a contrast there is between Lois and Eunice and then these women who are mentioned here in these two verses. And, of course, they had been led astray because we read there in verse 6 and on into verse 7 as well of men, teachers who had come in stealthily and had led away these women who are in view, these women who were weak and were easily overcome and were swept aside by every lie and every deception that was brought to them, that is, every lie and deception of a spiritual kind. And they had readily imbibed the false instruction of those who had come among them. These women were easily led. That's the sense of the word silly, which means weak. They were also, were told in verse 7, ever learning. And that actually means that they were continually taking in all this false instruction. And they believed that they were being taught. They believed that they were being instructed by those who had crept into the church in those days and were spreading their heresies. And so they were drinking it all in, the deception that was presented. And the outcome was that they were never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I could stay with that for long enough if I had time to do that, because it utters a very clear warning that if we allow false teaching to enter into our hearts and minds, then it will block out the truth that we should be learning, that we should be taking into ourselves. The serious inference, of course, of verses 6 and 7 is that through these women, these women who were weak and who just gave way and who were swept aside by evil men, through them the devil's emissaries were able to infect many, many more people by their deceptions, which of course is one of the prominent ways in which the devil works. And actually it very well could be that since it's women who are referred to in verses 6 and 7, it very well could be that their children, their families, and this will always be the case, had been deceived themselves and had been led astray because their mothers or whoever these women were in terms of relationships hadn't taken in the truth but taken in lies and deceptions and didn't keep them to themselves undoubtedly but spread all that among their households, their families, and therefore many more were led astray. Now, in the light of all that, how thankful Timothy would have been for the influence of his mother and his grandmother. He would have also been very appreciative of Paul's ministry, which is also in view in some other words found in our text. Notice this 14th verse again. It says, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. And those words, hast been assured of, well, they simply mean, they have the idea in them of being brought to trust and being brought to assurance. The, the things that he'd been taught, they, they enabled Timothy to trust in Christ. They enabled Timothy to be assured without any doubt whatsoever of the gospel, of the things of God. And that all came about some years after Lois and Eunice had taught Timothy in his childhood, it came when Paul came along, because Paul is the one who was Timothy's 
father in the faith. It was through the Apostle Paul that Timothy, as a very young man actually, was brought to know Jesus Christ. We can learn all this from the book of Acts and even from the references that are here in this chapter that we're looking at today, and especially this verse. And so, if you go back to chapter 113 for a moment, you'll notice something there important. Second uh, Timothy 1.13, it says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. There you have it. Paul also was an instructor of Timothy. He had given him sound words. And we will think about that for a moment here because the word sound means health-giving. And spiritually, and in the sense of the soul, the words that Timothy taught, or sorry, that Paul taught Timothy were health-giving to his soul so that he was well assured that all was grand with him. Uh, with regard to what he believed, with regard to what he was trusting in for the conversion of his soul, the forgiveness of his sins for eternity and for all that he would be as a minister of the gospel. It was well with Timothy because he had this blessed instruction given to him by these two ladies, uh, Lois and Eunice, and also then by the Apostle Paul who had led him to Christ. In relation to all this instruction, Paul urges Timothy to continue. That is the vital verse, or sorry, the vital word in our verse, our text for 2024. It really starts that way. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. And so that is the central issue and the central message in this verse. Continue in the things that thou hast learned. Now, the word continue, as you would understand, meaning of it's very obvious. The actual root word means to abide. It means to remain. And therefore, from the instruction that Timothy had received, he was not to deviate. He was not to cast it aside, but rather he was to continue in what he had been taught as a little boy and also as a young man through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Continue thou in the things that thou hast learned. There's a timely message for you and for me uh, for the days in which we live and for the year ahead especially as we think about this verse as our New Year's motto text. And I want to come to it right now, having explained it to you in its own setting here. And we'll be looking at the setting and the context a lot today. I want to look at this verse and consider two main features of the exhortation that each child of God receives here, that we are to continue in the things of God, which we have learned, by which our souls have been assured with regard to our earthly pilgrimage, our spiritual standing, our position before God, we are to continue in these things. Now, the first thing I want us to notice is the challenge. The challenge. Because if you look here at where this verse lies, it comes immediately after a statement in verse 13 that is very, very relevant also. It says, in verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. And so the context here 
It brings before us a certain challenge. In the entire chapter, may I say, that I read with you today, from verse number 1 right down to verse 13 on into verse 17, but taking that section 1 to 13, you have the climax in verse 13 of what commences in verse 1. So look at verse 1 for a moment, and look at it carefully with me. This know also, and those opening words, this know also. Yes, in addition to what already has been said in the first two chapters, as we have it before us today, Paul says, here's something else that you need to know, Timothy. And it's a word for every Christian in every age. And what is it? This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And so here's a prediction that comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul concerning what are called the last days, and it's a prediction of a challenge that will come against the church of God and against the individual Christian, of course, as well, with regard to what we have been taught, what we believe, those things in which we are to continue. You see, dear brethren and sisters, here's a prophetic warning of apostasy from the faith. And we want to think of that for a little time here because this is the challenge that is always there in every generation. There never comes a time when it could actually be said that the challenge against the gospel, the challenge against the truth, the challenge against the faith of the saints goes away and is no more. No, we've been told here that is not the case at all. Notice with me the development of all this. In verse 1, Paul refers to the last days, and you've often heard me say, and I'm sure other men as well, that the last days is a reference to the whole New Testament age. Therefore, it includes our times. Here's a time reference in that term, the last days, and therefore the Spirit reveals that uh, the whole period, that is the entire range of what is called the last days, in all that, perilous times are going to be present. They are going to come. Now, the word times is a word that signifies a point at which something actually happens. That's how it's used in the New Testament. I could take you to different verses that make the meaning of this word times very, very clear. And so, you'll find that the word is therefore sometimes translated season, a certain period of time when something happens, and it is a season all on its own, and the, the Holy Spirit is showing us here in verse number 1 that during the entire range of the New Testament period from the days of Paul or the other apostles, right through until Jesus comes, there is a series of of seasons in which these perilous situations actually develop and emerge and challenge the faith of the saints and the life of the church and the ministry of God's people. So that's an important word. Then the word perilous. It says perilous times, perilous seasons. And the word perilous means difficult. It signifies the idea, therefore, of this matter of challenge. Difficult, challenging times for the church of Christ coming in cycles. Arriving, each one, developing, ending, 
only for another one to come at a future time, as it were, on the heels of the previous one. And the sense is that as one comes and another comes, the new one is actually more perilous or more difficult than the one that has preceded it. And that's what you find in verse 13. Just read that verse again with me. Evil men and seducers. And these are not evil men in the general sense of evil people out in the community. These are evil men who are characterized as being seducers. So they creep into the church of God. They come with a certain message. They want to bring down the people of God. They want to corrupt and erode the things of God. That's who they are. They are men who are looked on even as being Christians. But they are not Christians because their whole goal is to challenge Christianity, erode Christianity, seduce Christians, lead them away from the things of God, from the truths that we've learned, that we've been taught, to which we are to hold that's what's in view in verse 13 as a key verse. It's the Holy Spirit's commentary on the last days with all of its perilous seasons. And what we're showing is in verse 13 that the world becomes increasingly worse as time goes by, as the generations evolve and come one after the other. It doesn't get better. It doesn't become easier. It doesn't become a situation where, well, they just vanish, as I said earlier, and there's no more seducers, no more corruptors of the church, no men rising up anymore to spread heresy. No, we will never come to that stage where this does not happen. The Holy Ghost makes it absolutely clear that it happens again and again and again. That's the challenge that there is here. I mean, we need to recognize that challenge and face it. If you look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, you will find there's something there that is parallel to this. 1 Timothy 4 and verse number 1, Now the Spirit, ex the Spirit speaketh expressly or exactly. And of course that's how the Holy Ghost does speak, with exactness, with preciseness. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And the verb there, depart, is a verb that signifies very, very clearly this whole issue of apostasy. You know, there are people who say, you shouldn't use that word in our day and times. No, my dear friend, I should use it, and I will use it as God gives me grace, because here is a word that is part of another prophecy here in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, apostasy from the mystery of godliness spoken of at the end of chapter 3, apostasy from Jesus Christ. That's what apostasy is. It's departure from Christ, His person and His work. And Paul writes here that the Holy Ghost speaks exactly that at a future time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so it's clear that there's this development of this apostasy, this waxing worse and worse, advancing in their evil and in their opposition and in their challenge to the things of God, advancing in evil, developing in wickedness. The word wax, just go back to verse 13 here in chapter 3. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. And that word wax signifies cutting a track in order 
to go forward. That's the sense of it. And it's a very important word in this context of things. In the perilous time, you see, evil men militantly campaign against divine truth, just in the same way as a man out there who's a pioneer, out in the forest, and he has to hack and cut a way through the forest to get to where he wants to go. That's the sense of the word. Now, where does the evil man want to go? Where does the seducer want to go? What's his goal? What is his ambition? It's to hack down everything that stands in his road of destroying the faith. That's his goal. That's what the Lord is telling us here and warning us about. And so, to such men and movements, Scripture and faith and holiness and morality are obstacles that must be removed so that they may advance in wickedness, that they may carry on their campaign and their agenda and go forward in what they want to do and reach the goal uh, which they have set for themselves. That's the sense of this language. And we've been showing, brethren and sisters, that this has happened down through time and it will happen more and more. It will increase. It will develop. It will not go away again, I say. There is the development of this apostasy. That is part of this challenge that we have to face. That is why it's so important to continue in the, th in the truth or in the things that we've been taught. But then there's the danger. Oh, for, by the way, before I leave that, look again with me at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 and the verse number 3. And I've often, and I'm sure you've heard it from other men as well, but I've often referred to this verse because to me it's one of the outstanding verses that points to the soon return of our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that's the day of the Lord's coming, shall not come except there come a falling away first. And it's just in those words, except there come a falling away first. And the original language there reads this way, except the apostasy shall come first. Now the verb come in that statement, except there come a falling away first, or the apostasy come first. That verb come is in a certain tense that indicates that this apostasy only happens once. That means that by this stage of which Paul writes in this verse, things have reached an awful peak. Apostasy has always been in Christendom. The perilous times have come and gone one after the other. And yet we have not finished, as it were. There comes a moment, or there comes a point, when the apostasy shall come. It is actually referred to here in this kind of language as one of a kind. Now get a hold of that today. I don't know if I've ever stressed that enough in preaching in these things. There is an apostasy that is one of a kind. And what does it do? Well, look at that same verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. It says, Except there come the apostasy first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This apostasy is one of a kind because it brings in the final man of sin. 
It characterizes the age in which he will appear. It shows the kind of, of situation in which, uh, there, in which the church will find itself challenged deeply, challenged intensely in that latter day before the Lord comes back when the apostasy develops and comes onto the stage and then out of that there comes the man of sin himself. So it's very, very clear. And I want you to take note, therefore, to all that development of this apostasy. We look at this verse and the challenge that, it, that, that we are thinking about here with regard to continuing in the things of God. There's the development of this apostasy, but quickly there's the danger of it. And it's found in that word perilous again. We've noted it in chapter 3 here in verse number 1. Perilous time shall come. I've already indicated it signifies difficult. And so, it's difficult for who? That's the question. It's not difficult for the world because the world is swept away. So for whom is it difficult? And the answer is very obvious. It's going to be difficult. It always is difficult for those who are now instructed in verse 14, but continue thou. Continue. Because Difficult days have already come and are coming upon us as I speak to you and will come even more as I've just seen toward the end of the age itself. Uh, so we're, we're seeing here that this is the sense of this word, something that actually presents great difficulty for the church of Jesus Christ. It's danger, therefore, for the church. It's danger from corrupt behavior I haven't time to analyze this chapter at all, but if you just look back quickly to verses 2 to 5, and we read those verses earlier, it starts with the first statement there, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, and then verse number 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. If you went through those verses 2 to 5, you will find 19 sinful features spelled out by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, therefore, takes great time here, or He's very, very accurate in what He shows. Nineteen specific sins are named and spelled out. I don't say from this pulpit today, because it would be silly, to place some significance on the number 19. I'm leaving that alone because I don't believe that's profitable. But what I'm simply showing is the Holy Ghost has written down in this detailed way the corruption that will mark the perilous time. Now, corruption is always present because as well as I showed you some few months ago, we live in a corrupt world and that corruption is continually at work and that's what you're looking at here, danger from corruption of behavior. But notice what Paul says in verse number 5. He says at the end of that verse, from such turn away. Now, Christian, get a hold of this. There always is a danger at any time for the child of God of being swept up, swept away by what's going on in the world around us because of the apostasy of our times. There's the danger that the child of God will get caught up in this. And therefore, Paul says, from such, from such people and such sins, we are to turn away. Now, that, of course, is standard for Christian living. The child of God is an individual who is constantly to endeavor to walk with God, turn away from this sin and that sin and the other sin. 
but especially when this kind of a scene comes upon us. And the reason why Paul says, from such turn away, is that if you don't, then you are running the risk of being conditioned into acceptance of this corruption that marks those times. You see, that's so clear. The Lord Himself warns of this in Matthew 24 and verse number 12, where He says, Because iniquity or lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now think about that statement. It's in the context of the great Olivet Discourse. It's where the Lord's writing or speaking about signs of His coming again and so forth. And here's one of them. He says, because iniquity, lawlessness, corruption will abound before I come back. The love of many shall wax cold. Now here's the question. Whose love? Whose love? And you need to think about that. We can certainly rule out the devil. We can rule out the unregenerate. They have no love for the Lord anyhow. So who does that leave? It leaves those who profess to be Christians. And the Lord is telling us this will be one of the marks of those days. The love of many shall wax cold. Isn't it interesting that the very first a feature that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3 in verse number 2 is that list of 19 sins. The first one he mentions is, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now, self-love is part of man's fallen nature. Man loves himself. He loves his sin. He loves the world. He loves its ways. He loves its corruption. He immerses himself in it. He delves into it more and more. It supposedly makes him happy, but in the final outcome it makes him miserable and it destroys him. But men do love their sin. And that's why we watch people who maybe are brought up in the church of Jesus Christ, who have known the gospel, who have been taught the things of God, and we start to see their love that they once claimed to have or profess beginning to wane or wax cold. It's the church of Jesus Christ that's in view in Matthew 24 and verse number 12. That is alarming. That is very, very serious. That's something that we should take to ourselves today and think about. The love of self will take away from the love of the Lord. That's why, Christian, you must guard your heart all the time. Lord, let not my love for thee diminish. Maintain it, strengthen it, energize it. Do this always every day, Lord. Give me a love for Thee that burns and is strong and will flame for Thee. That's how we should pray, for that's how we want to live. But the love of many will wax cold. And you see, that means that there's only a danger from corruption and behavior there's a danger, therefore, from corruption in, doctor, in doctrine. This is part of this whole challenge, the church, the church of God being challenged with this corruption in behavior, lifestyles, and so forth. It then transfers over to what we actually believe, a doctrine. If you go back to verse number 5, notice what Paul says there. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, 
The word form means an outline. And that's all it is. If you think of an outline, if you take something that you draw on a page and all you have on it is an outline of some shape or fashion, what does that mean about what you have put on the page? There's no substance to it. It's an outline only. It's a sham. It's a veneer. You might say, I'm going to draw a picture of a, a cow or a car, whatever it might be. And all you do is put an outline down there. And you can't say that it actually conveys the reality of what you want to put down on the page. It's only an outline. That's the sense of that word, form, an outline, something that is only a, a veneer or a sham. And that means it's powerless. It says they're having a form, an outline of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And we've looked at those verses already this morning in passing. That means that there's no understanding of the truth. Verse number 7, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that right? We live in a world where there are many, many, many religions and many, many religious people and they're taking in this truth, well, not truth, they're taking in this teaching and the next teaching, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth. All they have is at best an outline. And my friend, that can happen in the life of the church of Jesus Christ, where all we have is an outline, a veneer, and there's no substance to it. The ignorance of God in our day and times is amazing ignorance of God. People do not know God. They're in darkness. Naturally, that's the way it is with men. No understanding of the truth. They're actually resistors of the truth, because it goes on there to, in chapter 3 and verse number 8, it says this, as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Look at that. If a man has nothing but an empty profession and you bring to that man the truth, he will resist it. He will oppose it. That's what Paul is writing about here. A failure to grasp the meaning and the reality of the truth or the faith of the gospel. And in a perilous time, that corruption in doctrine, it abounds. And therefore, there's spiritual danger. And that means there must be Caution exercised, because, brethren and sisters, the challenge is upon us. Let's get that clear. That sets up our text, the challenge that you and I are going to face in 2024. I want this congregation that I love, to which I am preaching for nearly a quarter of a century now, and that's not going to go on much longer, may I say, as far as I'm concerned. But I want you to understand on the verge of 2024, here is why Paul says, continue in the truth, the things that you've learned, because the challenge is even greater than 23, 24 years ago. I said there were two points today so quickly I will come to the second main point. We look at the challenge. But then I must deal with what's called, what I want to call the counteraction. Because this verse, 
but continue thou on the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. This is really the Christian's counteraction to the challenge that is there. Now, you know what a counteraction is. It's a tactic that is used to oppose and to actually mitigate the effects of another's actions by contrary action. So, the world comes, or more specifically, false religion comes to challenge us, to challenge the church, to challenge the Christian, to say, give way, give up, do what we're doing, take on board our teaching, listen to what we have to say, don't be old fuddy-duddies, don't be old-fashioned, that's the cry today, you've got to move with the times. That's the great cry. You've got to move with the times. And that has permeated politics and commerce and everything that's in the world. Moving with the times. It may be right in some time or some occasion or other, but my dear friend, the Christian doesn't move with the times in what they mean by that cliche. Because what that really means is abandon everything. Give up. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He says, you've got to counteract that. Counteraction is to be employed as a means of continuing when we face the challenge of the perilous times. Look at those words again with me. Continue thou. And then you've got the little word in. And that's fine. But the word there could also be translated, continue thou by the thing which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. In other words, there's a challenge, Christian. There's a challenge that comes to Christ's church, but here's how we counteract it. We take the things that we have been taught and that we have learned, and by them we continue in the truth. In other words, we actually move against the apostasy, or we stand against it, whatever you want to put it. That's what Paul is showing us here. He presents to us the counteraction that the Lord's people are to adopt in the face of the challenge. Now, what's the basis for that counteraction? It's very obvious. The things which thou hast learned. And then he immediately, in verse 15 through to 17, goes into that tremendous presentation of the place of the Scripture in the life of God's people, in the life of the church of God. And so the basis for the counteraction is the Word of God. It says in verse 15, From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I know that all of you, mostly I'm sure here today, have heard those verses preached many and many a time, and you've read them yourself. But in those verses, there is a, a presentation by Paul with regard to this matter of counteracting apostasy, a presentation by Paul of the place, the authority, the value of the Word of God. And you have there the inspiration of it, of the Scripture. Verse uh, 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And you've heard it, I suppose most of you, it reads literally, every Scripture is God-breathed. And what truth is in that? And what, what encouragement is in that? We're to counteract the challenge that comes against us by means 
of the Scriptures, the Scriptures that God has given to His people that we have in our Bibles now before us and have been given through the breath of the Holy Ghost. I don't have time this morning. I don't need to do it anyhow, really. But this is just one verse in which we have that doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture set before us. You'll find the same doctrine in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. You'll find it also in 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Those are great passages where the, the truth of the inspiration of the Word of God is brought before us. But not only the inspiration of Scripture. Here in 2 Timothy 3, as Paul says to us, continue. Don't, don't be moved. Don't give way. Don't fall in the face of the challenge, but rather continue on. Counteract what's going on. Man and woman today, child of God, that's God's marching orders those are God's marching orders for you and me for another year. Continue on what you've been learned because you have the, the Bible given to you by the breath of God. And thank the Lord, it has also been preserved. That is there by inference. If you take those words, every, skip, every scripture literally reads as God breathed. And in this context, that's the Old Testament. And Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, what was written in Old Testament days, you have. And that means that God had preserved His Word. And we believe in the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. But then there's also the sufficiency of it. Verse 16, toward the end of the verse, it's profitable for doctrine. And notice that doctrine comes first. Teaching is what the word means. Where will we be taught? What is the fountainhead of truth? It is the inspired and preserved book of God that in its sufficiency gives to us the teaching that we need. But it's also profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, and that's Timothy. This is specifically written to Timothy as a gospel minister, and he's being shown these things by Paul, but it's for every Christian by extension. Dear believer, you do not need anything else but the Word of God. Now get this clearly into your mind. The basis for counteracting evil, wickedness of any kind is what the Bible says. And if ever there was a time when ridicule is poured upon what the Bible says, certainly in our lifetimes, I would venture to say it is now, what does the Bible say about this, that, and the other thing in terms of possessions or uh, beliefs or whatever you care to mention? What does the Bible say? That's where the Christian needs to go. Not go to the philosophy of the world and listen to this man and the other man or whatever it might be. Yes, you can listen to men, but measure them by what the Bible says, what the Word of God teaches. If you're going to counteract sin in your own life, never mind on the wider scale in the church of God. Then the basis for that counteraction is this, the Scriptures and their fullness. So that is clear. But then let me say something else here as I come to the end of this message. The battle in this counteraction, there is the basis, that's the Word of God, but there's a battle. 
And you see, that's what you find developing when you come into chapter 2. Now, I've been touching on that battle already, but now more specifically, if you come into chapter 4 with me, you will find that as we seek to counter this counteraction by Christ's church, it is going to be resisted. It's going to be resisted. You're not going to counteract what an evil man says and he not reply or he not respond to that. He will come against you again. And so that's what you find in chapter 4. What do you have there? Well, just look with me quickly at what you have in those verses from verse 2. It begins with this tremendous statement, which is right here. Preach the Word. And so, do you notice, therefore, what Paul is doing? He says, preach the Word. He goes on to elaborate that in verse 2. But then I want you to move to verse 3. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, again, we need to ask the question, who or of whom does he speak? When he says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, my dear friend, it's the church, the professing church. It's an unwillingness to endure sound doctrine. Notice that. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I've commented on the word sound already this morning in this message it signifies that which is healthy, that which is whole, that which is in good shape, so to speak. And so the gospel does produce that in the souls of those who embrace it and who rest in Christ. But then you see, there is teaching that is not sound. And that unsound doctrine is what Paul warns about here, for he says they will not endure sound doctrine, and the inference says they want something that is different. Why? Because they're dissatisfied with that which is sound doctrine. Look at verse 3 again, and notice these words, after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Their own lust, the strong desires of the hearts of men and women, lusts and desires that arise from the fleshly nature. They've got these ears that itch or crave for that which will suit their perverted tastes and that will give to them what they believe will gratify their, their, their lustful hearts. They, they don't want the old message anymore. They want something new because they believe it will be good for them. You see, that lust, that itch that Paul writes about here is everywhere in terms of preaching. That's why Paul warns in 2 Corinthians against watering down the truth. And you know, I was just talking to a brother this morning before I came in here about times and so on, and we were just talking about what happens at funerals nowadays. What happens at funerals? Don't mention hell. Just talk about the person who has passed away and how good he or she was at baking or sewing or carpentry or farming or in their career, their business. Talk about those things. And you hear this palaver about all that stuff. And it may all be very true in its own place. But don't mention hell. Don't preach on judgment. 
don't bring a message about the wrath of God. It doesn't suit our tastes anymore. That's the way, that's the way it is in Balamina. That's the way it is in this little town and the surrounding region. Go to funerals and listen to men in the pulpits as, or wherever they are, and you won't hear hardly one word of warning or of even the presentation of the cross and the death of Christ. And they keep talking about so-and-so was trusting. And they never tell you what that means. That's the day in which we're found. There's that matter of something new. And then also with, uh, with, regard, with regard to preaching. Then forms of worship. Forms of worship. And new kinds of music. Let's take this all on board, we're told. Do away with the... Here's what they're against. The, sol the solemn reverence that is due to God. You know, it often amazes me when I hear free Presbyterians say something like this. I went to the church and nobody spoke to me. Now, I'd always ask the question, well, did you speak? Well, you know what that person's saying? That's why he or she goes to church. Now, stop and think about this. We should be friendly, and may I encourage that? Whatever your age group, young people, uh, another young fellow or another young lassie coming in, go and speak to that person. Encourage that individual. But let's not imbibe this cultural, uh, this, this mental approach that we go to church to get something out of it for ourselves. No, you don't. You go to church to worship God. It's what God gets out of it. It's not what we get out of it. And let me tell you something in addition to that. If we worship God according to the Scripture, not only will God be glorified, we will be blessed. We will get something out of it. And if you study church history carefully, you will find that when God's people sat in those houses of old and heard the mighty preaching of the Word, they went out of the house of God. In fact, they came into the house of God before the service ever started with a subdued spirit because they knew they were coming to meet with God. And when the preacher had finished, they left the house of God with that same heart that was awed and bowed before a holy God. We've heard from God we had God set before us in His Word. We've seen His requirements of us. And they went away thinking deeply, praying over it. My dear friend, that's the way that the Bible teaches us with regard to how we respond or we, we, are, we, we, we activate ourselves in the place of worship in that reverent, holy, awesome manner so that God is glorified. And the music, of course... It's music more and more that caters to the flesh, that causes the heart to be stirred in a manner that is not according to truth. What we sing should be theologically and biblically correct as much 
as is possible. Keep that in mind. Because it's the authority of the Bible that lends its influence to everything else that we are to be and to do in the work of God. And you see, this is the battle in this counteraction. There are things that need to be counteracted in all of our lives, and certainly in the life of the church of God, because of the dangers and the deviation and the dissatisfaction that so often arises, even among those who are in Bible-believing churches. What does Paul say there as we close up today? If you look carefully at 2 Timothy 4, he says in verse 5, Watch thou in all things. My dear friend, what we have been looking at today, continue thou in the things that thou hast been taught, or what you've learned, in other words, and has been assured of. What is the point of all this? It's for your own spiritual good. It's for the blessing of your soul. Therefore, continue in them and watch in all things and endeavor to go on with God in another year that lies ahead of you. And may the Lord bless His Word to our hearts today for His glory. And take this Word of His. Enable us all to obey its instruction and be what the Lord would have us to be. Let us bow in prayer. Let's unite together these closing moments. Our Father in heaven, we come to Thee and we pray that Thou wilt be with us and bless us. We confess our great need of help and grace at the day when the battle rages, when darkness has come down, when on every hand there is that which is grieving to Thee and to Thy Spirit, an undermining of the Word. O Lord, come and help us. Grant us a breath from heaven. Move upon us, we pray. Help us to continue in those truths that we have been taught down through the years, whether from childhood or whenever it may have been. And Lord, we do thank Thee for all the memories that we have of faithful people who not only taught us but set an example. And we pray, O Lord, that in our day and time that will help us to do the same. Help our young people here today to see and to understand these issues and to flee from that which is not according to the truth of God. Be with us now, bless throughout the rest of this day, and grant thy presence to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with all thy people today and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray.